about as always i am matt from austin and coming to us from houston is my brother ken say hello ken peace be with you brother oh boy let's hope he doesn't stay like this or it's going to be a really boring podcast folks <laughs> all right today we are talking about return of the archons episode number 22 which oddly is also the exact episode it is in uh, the watching order. So both watching or and filming order. This is episode 22. And that will also be true with next week's episode. Episode 23. So It is the wisdom of Landrew. So uh, let's get going to some of the awesome behind the scenes information going on. Uh, in 1964, uh, this was one of the uh, series proposal synopsis that uh, Roddenberry had handed in. It was originally called The Perfect World. Uh, as actually his first try at the story was called Paradise, Paradise XML, and it was dated July 20th, 1964, and was a contender for the first pilot film. Uh, obviously, they didn't choose this one. They went with The Cage, but uh, they, brought in, uh, they brought in Herb Sobelman to write this episode. He asked to look at a few scripts or a series Bible and just handed him this script. He sort of took the hint and uh, decided he was going to go ahead and write this script up and make it a thing. So in a fun little piece of behind-the-scenes information, the Archons uh, came from a debating club that Roddenberry had belonged to while he was at Los Angeles City College. Uh, and it was taken from the Greek word Archon, meaning ruler or leader. It's kind of a perfect name for a uh, Starfleet uh, ship, actually. Got all your yeah, islands, so Crusader, Enterprise. Right. We see it in lots of English words that have the arc in it, like monarch or uh, those kinds of things. Anarchy is another good one. What's that? There are no rulers. Anarchy. Anarchy. There are no rulers. So, Robert Justman brought up uh, in one of his notes on the uh, about this script was his like he felt again that we were hitting too much on to like well look at this it's another earth it's another parallel world you know blah 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 but Roddenberry felt that this was like well this is one of the main points I'd been going from the beginning in my series proposal because we're dealing with a TV budget here we can't build a whole new world every time we land on a planet so let's just keep doing these sort of parallel earth stories and that way you know we can save all the monies in the world plus DeForest Kelly looks fabulous when you dress him up in western clothing (laughs) (laughs) also true because he's totally comfortable and used to them another thing that uh robert justin was freaking out about is that when he was looking at the uh uh, uh, initial script he saw the mob of people that were supposed to be in the opening uh scene and he was like that's gonna be not only a lot of people we have to pay to be there but also a bunch of people that we're gonna have to you know dress and put into wardrobe so he kept warning as they went through script after script, like, hey, 
This is a lot of money. This is going to cost us a lot of money as far as extras, and it's going to cost a lot of money a lot of our wardrobe. Well, guess what? They didn't listen to him. So, so okay. So uh, it, in one of his memos about, hey, this is really going to cost a lot of money, get all these people and the wardrobes and everything, he says, if I had to make a guess, I would say that this show in its present state has got a cost of somewhere around $230,000. So that means we either have to junk this script or figure out how we can slash, 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 slash and make it for a lot cheaper. Sadly, even with all the slashing that he did, that price tag proved Justman to be just about right. <laughs> His estimates were not far off the right. So, oh, did I say er- Herb Sobelman earlier? I meant Boris. I don't know where Herb came from. But anyway, script by Boris Sobelman uh, was taken from a story. Natasha. That's right. It was taken from, like I said, a story that Roddenberry had written earlier. Well, uh, he wrote to uh, the Desilu lawyers and was said, hey, uh, Sobelman hasn't given me any credit on this, but it was my story idea from a script that I had written before. So um, just I just want to put in for credit, a story credit, and make sure that I get that. So this credit that he demanded and probably deserved, uh, he got his paycheck as well. On top of this, Sobelman this Roddenberry, was... Ne- right? Yep, Roddenberry. Uh, Sobelman, again, was then never asked back to write another Star Trek. And then not only that, but in early 1968, the script was not nominated for a Writers Guild Award. Now, Ooh. of course, what's that? Ooh, I see drama. Right? <clears throat> uh, the funny thing is, is that this is probably not the best script that they could have chosen from this season to uh, have put up. But it was the only one with Roddenberry's name on it. So that's probably why it got submitted. It's also, I mean, so this problem, right? Somebody builds an AI, and the AI takes over and is running society. Mm-hmm. So obviously, we're familiar with those kinds of stories. Matrix, um, right. Skynet. So this was a fear. In fact, in early science fiction, this is one of the terrible sins, like bringing the dead back to life that scientists might do. They might build a computer to run things. Oh my God, that would be awful. It would always turn out to be a dystopian story. You know, you don't have a lot of early science fiction in which, hey, that works out great. Let's let's (laughs) build build some computers. And so, I think in a lot of ways, this this fits, you know, that kind of, oh, we, we know this story, we're familiar with this. Don't go into that forbidden zone of building an AI. Now, it's funny, because we watch it, and, you know, it turns out this terrible AI is a mainframe computer. (laughs) Yes. You know, so, it's very top-down. There's this mainframe, and somehow it's got projectors. Whereas, you know, if we were to imagine this terrible AI, it would be more distributed. Mm-hmm. You know, if if we had a discovery encounter as an AI, it would probably take them a while to realize there was an AI because it wouldn't be, hi, I'm the AI and I run everything from this central location, which is easy to attack. Yeah. You know, it would kind of be everywhere. So they brought back uh, Joseph Pevney to uh, direct this episode. He was the one who kept uh, Arena on schedule and on budget. So they were hoping he'd be able to work his magic on this episode. He did not. He actually came in a day late, unfortunately, on this one. And uh, also did not come in on budget, but that was also, as we've discussed, due to the mob of people they needed for this episode. 
The only other episode to use more extras. City on the Edge of Forever. Because if you think about it, yeah, if you think about it, that little like town has got people bustling by all the time. Or at least in my head it does. I guess we'll see in a few episodes. Uh, Harry Towns, uh, he's the guy who played Rager. He was 52 and had almost 200 credits in TV and film, including multiple appearances on The Twilight Zone, uh, Thriller, and The Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Love to get those guys from Twilight Zone who aren't Science fiction. What is that now? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Torin Thatcher is the guy. I love that name. Torin Thatcher. Sounds like a. <laughs> it sounds like a, a soap opera name or something. Anyway, he played uh, Marplum, the third leader of the resistance, the inside man. He was sixty-one. He too had uh, almost two hundred roles in TV and film. Uh, the one year before this, he played the title character of the Space Trader in the episode of Lost in Space by the same name. John Lormer, he's the guy who plays Tamar, right? He's the older guy who gets killed by the lawgivers. Uh, so he was actually one of the craft survivors in the cage, uh, you may recall. And he will end up as the elderly man in the episode titled, For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky. In that episode, he also drops dead. <laughs> because the machine has to be shut down. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Eddie Paskey, who we discussed last week, returns in this episode as Leslie, but he is also uh, disguised enough to play a member of the body, so he's also one of the other extras that is uh, mooling about here. Uh, already making his 19th out of 59 appearances on the series. That's a lot. Also, the landing party... And he speaks! Uh, that's right, and he speaks. Also with the landing, uh, Landry Parter is uh, David Ross. He's the like other guy. Uh, making his third of nine appearances on the show. So, uh, you know, this was Mayberry again, right? We're back in Mayberry. and uh, so, But the clock tower was built specifically for this episode. Uh, nearby, near that same piece of real estate, was also uh, the Marine base for Gomer Pyle and the German concentration camp for Hogan's Heroes. Well, I guess that's all I got on behind-the-scenes stuff. You ready to get to this? Let's get to it. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. So the the show opens. We got some tense music happening already, right? We got some guys and some tri-cornered hats running around. Uh, uh, one slips, and it turns out it's Sulu. Oh no! What's happened to Sulu? He's fallen down. He calls up to the Enterprise and tells them they need a immediate beam up. O'Neill says he can't wait. He scares. He says, "You know what they can do to us," and he runs off. And then we see the monks, well, monks or hooded people of some kind, coming closer. Who are they? We don't know. Suddenly, uh, one gets close to Sulu with his pole, and it shoots some sort of cloud of smoke at him with a pole. Sulu reacts just before he is beamed out. Once up in the transporter loom, Su- uh, transporter room, Sulu loses his mind, and the dreamy Star Trek music starts playing. Ooh, I can't even do it now. But anyway, uh, he's, he turns and he says, uh, uh, you are not of the body, to Kirk. He turns and points to another tech, and he says, you, you did it. They knew we were archons. These are the clothes he wears, and he throws Sulu throws the, the 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 uniform at one of the techs. Kirk calls from McCoy. 
He then sits Sulu down and tries to calm him down as McCoy enters. All he can say is that it is paradise below. Opening credits. We come back and it's Captain's Log 3156.2. They are orbiting Beta 3, trying to find a ship that, uh, that disappeared 100 years ago called the Archon. They beam down. They, uh, ha- oh, funny side note I wrote here is that uh, they had to use this back a lot uh, during the two days in which they weren't filming uh, the Andy Griffith show on it. So that's kind of funny. That is interesting um, that they're basically working around another TV show. Yes, exactly. Uh, a man walks by the crew. He kind of crosses by and nods. Uh, solemnly looks at them. The look on his face, according to Spock, is vacant contentment. Is everyone on the planet like this? We have to wonder. Two guys cross behind them, walking rather peculiarly. I don't know if you, you saw this, but they were like walking on a beat. And they were walking in a very like specific, like kind of robotish kind of way of moving. But I don't know. I don't know if you noticed that, but I thought that was really cool. Man walks up to him and says, uh, uh, Strangers. Are you, uh, are you here for the festival? Kirk and the crew basically say, uh, yeah, yeah, but we need a place to stay. And he's like, oh, go down the street, and uh, there's a Tula's father can, uh, can put you up there. And then all of a sudden, he just starts, like, yelling at Tula. He's like, Tula, they, uh, they need some place to stay. Can they stay with your father? No, no, it was really weird. I don't know why he was yelling. He tells them about the red hour, which is about to start at 6. And then, out of nowhere... It's six o'clock, and the red hour begins, and everyone goes a little bit kooky. We can't see what there. Uh, we hear screaming, and then we see a woman picked up in the street and carried off. Tula goes after Kirk and kisses him, and then another woman runs onto the street and kisses Kirk. Windows are being shattered. Uh, uh, that same guy picks up Tula and carries her away. Kirk decides they should make her run for it. There are more windows being broken. Bricks being thrown, guys jumping through windows for no reasons. They get through the door. And as they get through the door, one, uh, one foam brick hits Spock on the head. I don't know if you saw that, but I thought that was funny. Uh, then there are two people in a passionate embrace that are sort of ravishing each other as Kirk enters the hotel. You wonder what's going on. Is this something like The Purge? What's happening here? Yeah, so it's like The Purge. It's like maybe Pond Far where it turns out the ideal society isn't quite so ideal after all, that you just can't suppress all those emotions and turn everyone into stepward wives without them needing some kind of crazy release. If I had a big question about this episode, it's this whole thing, right? Which, yes, is very interesting, but it never plays into what happens in the rest of the episode. Like, they never talk about it again, you know? They never right. say, like, well, you can't suppress a human. You can't keep his, you right. know, instincts down, no matter how violent. So, part of our problem here is they introduce this in the beginning. They never refer back to it. And then at the very end, when you get Spock, who seems to have changed his position... Because up until now, Spock had been, you know, kind of saying, this is messed up. Right? Yeah. And suddenly at the very end, he's like, it was an ideal society. People have been striving for something like that forever. And you're like, really? Spock? So, you know, you were telling me how awful it was up until you got back on the <laughs> yeah. bridge. But okay. Now you're down for it. 
And that would have really been a time if we hadn't gotten to it to be like, you know, you, you can't make people behave that way. Because yep. the result is, if you don't let them have their, how, you know, what that lieutenant describes at the end, well, we've had a couple of knockdown drag outs. It may not be paradise, but it's very human. You go, see? Now, you, you know, you got to have those little releases of steam because otherwise you got to have the red hour. Yep. This is much better. But they never make that argument. And on top of it, you get the, whoa, Spock, you did a 180 on us. Yep. So that was, you know, kind of a problem. I think they, it's like it got tacked down at the end. They didn't know how to end it. Well, we got to have a conversation at the bridge, don't we? Like discussing what just happened. I, yeah, exactly. I also wonder if maybe they had written, if they had a rewrite. You know what I mean? Because they filmed all yeah, they filmed yeah. all the Enterprise stuff first, right? And then maybe something else got tagged on at the end, or Roddenberry did a last you know a last day finish or something on it. Yeah, or you know hadn't quite figured out how many lines about whoa this is kind of messed up. We're gonna end up going to Spock. Yeah, rather than you know uh, some other character. And so where it would have made sense to have the the computer-like Spock say, hey, this is an ideal society. In terms of, like, on the planet, he gets a lot of lines where he's saying these people aren't aren't healthy, this, this is not well-developed. Yep. The fact that Landry's in charge is making people act in a way that's unhealthy and stilted and stunted, which creates this contrast with what he says at the end. Yeah. So uh, they enter the hotel. I guess it's a hotel or it's somebody's house. I don't know exactly. Who he, they made it sound like it was somebody's house, but then it's like a hotel. Who knows? Anyway, so uh, as they enter the hotel, three men are standing there as they enter. Uh, they ask if they are strangers here for the festival. One of the old men questions, you know, the other as to why these young men have not joined into the Red Hour. The festival has begun! Uh, one of them says, uh, Tamar says, uh, hey, uh, uh, you know, they're from the valley. Maybe uh, they have different, you know, values down in the valley. He's like, are there no lawgivers in the valley? Is Landrew not there? Tula decides he's going to uh, take the uh, Kirk and the crew up to the rooms anyway. Well, the old man scoffs at the uh, at the idea that the, the lawgivers uh, don't already know what's happening, uh, which makes him even more angry. And he storms out saying he must tell them. Up in the room... Uh, Rager, we find out his name in, uh, tells Kirk that they can uh, rest in the room after the festival. Uh, Kirk assures them, uh, no, we're not going to the festival. He wants to know more about it and who this Landrew is, but then the man gets scared. And then there's this weird cut when we go to outside, and we see, you know, fires have started, and men and women are running around the street, and fights are happening, and... Uh, then we get this like surprisingly great shot of uh, like Kirk standing in the window looking outside at everything that's happening. You know, I thought that was a, a really good shot for you know this time and age. But when we come back into the room, Rager is gone, and then you know we got Kirk you know telling everybody what to do. So it's like it was just a weird cut. It was like the scene didn't really end. It just like cut away from it as Rager left. You know, like what happened? Anyway, yeah, like they like they accidentally got this really good shot. We got to use that. Yeah, 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 Where exactly. We put it. I don't know. Stick it here. <laughs> so uh, anyway, Kirk sets the crew to their tasks, and he says that to Spock, like, you and I have to put our brains together and figure out, you know, what's going on here. 
So at six in the morning, the clock strikes six, you know, the clock strikes bing, bing, bing. And in mid ravish, the people automatically stop what they're doing and return to their quiet, content ways. Yes, Stepford Wives. Kirk wakes everybody up. And then from downstairs, we hear screaming. Kirk goes down to see Tula crying and shrieking in her father's arms. Rigger tries to console her. One of the crew chastises Jaeger for saying, why didn't you save your daughter from whatever was going on in this festival? Rigger says, it was Landrew's way. Kirk asks about this Landrew again. The old man says, oh, then you are not of the body. And the two older men skulk away. But Kirk follows. Bones has tranquilized the, the Tula, the daughter. Are you archons? Rager asks. What if we are? Asks Kirk. Well, they said there would be more. We must hide you. But then the lawgiver enters. And the, old, and the old man from before calls out Tamar for scoffing Landrew. And then in a mechanical voice, the lawgiver tells Rager to step out of the way. Tamar has no choice but to obey the voice of Landrew, steps forward, and he too then is guessed from the end of a pole. <gasps> the lawgivers turn to Kirk and claim him not to be of the body. He will be absorbed. You will be absorbed. Commercial. Back at it. Kirk rejects the request. This makes the lawgivers confer. Spock sidles up to Kirk and says, mm, They are not used to dealing with disobedience. How did you know? Kirk says, well, everything here seems to have a compulsive stimulus to action. Hmm. Spock says, that is very logical. The givers repeat their request as if Kirk somehow misunderstood what they had said. Kirk tell, uh, tells them to tell Landrew that they will come when they are ready, and they will speak to him then. And then he just casually takes one of the poles out of their hands and then hands it back to Spock. Spock is amazed that it's just a hollow pole. There's nothing inside of it. No switches or anything. How does it work? Well, there's just another thing we never find out in the episode. We just, uh, yeah, these poles just magically work. We don't know how. Computers running them or something. Yeah, so in a lot of ways, the lawgivers are powerless against the, the Enterprise crew. Mm-hmm. They give them commands and they just disobey them. And you can imagine that you know, at some point, you'd get a, from Spock, it's the placebo effect. You know, they eject this, this harmless powder, and people assume that they've been brought back into the power of Landru, and they just respond as if that had actually happened. Whereas, we don't even know how that's supposed to work, so when you hit us, we're like, you got me full of powder, dude. But of course, we saw it work on Sulu in the yep. beginning. So. so who knows? But that would have been a, a good little scene. But they needed to do something different with Sulu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I actually bring that up later. I'll bring it up later. Okay, so uh, while they are communing, Rager takes them somewhere to be safe. The, the, the lawgivers were communing with, uh, with, with Landru, I guess. He says, I must keep you safe. Otherwise, Landru will come for us. Don't they want that? Don't they want to confront, uh, don't they want to confront Landru? Oh, I guess they need Only to save it. on their own time. Yes. Plus, they got to save it for the third act, so we'll just wait till then. This is the first act. We can't do it now. So, as they exit, Kirk and Spock contemplate how weird the place has become. Uh, the havoc that once was is now the calmness of it all. 
So then my question was, who rebuilds all this stuff? Like, there are a lot of broken windows out there. There's like, some places are torn apart. Like, who's going to fix all this stuff? The people are just walking around like they always do. I mean, who really fixes all this after the festival? Apparently they don't care. They're willing to live in a pigsty. Rager says that they must hurry. The body will come after them. But oh no, it's too late. The body has all stopped and turned on a dime. They turn toward Kirk and the crew. The people then start picking up rocks or sticks or whatever they can find. But like Mike Myers in all the Halloween movies, there's no running. They're just quietly walking towards them. So the crew starts running. They round the corner, and there's a bunch of the bodies standing there waiting for them. Kirk stuns a few of them. Then they find O'Neill, among them, lying on the ground. He has been absorbed! <clears throat> Raymar tells them to leave him, that Landrew would be able to find them through him, but they take him anyway. Rhaegar leads them to another room, and in this room is a fireplace that I suspect is the same one from the Squire of Gothos. It just looks the same. I never got anything that said one way or the other in the book, so I'm going to stick with it and says it probably is. Anyway, in that little nook that was once a fireplace and is now a little nook, uh, Rager pulls out a white glowing panel. It comes from a time before Landrew. 6,000 years ago, some people say. Spock scans and finds power fluctuations emanating from all direction. Bones tells us that O'Neill is coming around, but... Rager says, no, he must not. He'll give us away. Kirk decides to go ahead and trank him. Good call, Kirk. Rager goes on to say that the body uh, only absorbs its enemies. It only kills when necessary. When the Archons came, we find out they opposed the Willander, not surprisingly, and many were killed and more were absorbed. And here we find out the most important information. There is an underground against Landru. People who do not uh, believe that Landru is, is great and, and good. We find out more about the Archons. They were pulled down from the sky by Landru. Kirk, worried about his girl now, calls up to the ship. Scott is up there, and he's in charge. They are being fired upon by a heat, uh, by a heat ray, basically, and uh, being pulled out of the orbit at the same time. Spock a, tells him, keep this. This is a weird but, moment, right? Because okay. they describe this heat ray, and you're thinking, well, what possible heat ray are they talking about? So it's not like they're shining a, you know, a big UV lamp on them and giving them all a tan. <laughs> right. You know, so what exactly are they doing? It's got to be some kind of energy weapon. Like the phasers that, you know, the Enterprise fires, or, you know, maybe it's more high-tech, maybe it's less high-tech. But it's got to be, it's, it's not like it's a heat ray or, you know. Yeah. You'd go, they're hitting us with some kind of energy weapon, producing a tremendous amount of heat. You know, the, the ship's under certain kinds of duress. And then, you know, okay, I'm worried about it. You do what you can, I will. But instead, you know, we get this vague heat ray. Yep. You know, talk, and you're like, what? More of that uh, 1950s space talk, you know. Yeah. It's a heat ray. Kirk tells uh, Scott to keep the shields up and keep her in orbit. Their new objective now is to shut down the beam to save the ship. And then suddenly Landru appears. Kirk demands that he stop firing on the ship. Landru is talking, but he's not answering. 
Spock decides it must be a projection. And then the signal grows. grows. A whirring sound, a sonic device, taking them all down, including our hero, Kirk, who is the last to fall before going to commercial. Back to it. We get another weird captain's log where he's not on the ship, but he gets to give one anyway, basically, again, filling us in on what's happened in the first half of the show. 3157.4, to be exact. He tells us the shore party has been taken by Landru. Kirk is the first to awake. And he finds, uh, he finds himself in a, in a cell, basically, with no phasers. Kirk sets, sets to uh, finding a way out, but no luck. So he decides to wake up the rest of them. Spock uh, gives out an important piece of information here where he says he finds it interesting how the lawgiver's reaction to, Spock, uh, to Kirk's insubordination is similar to what a computer would give to improper input. Mm. The door opens. You know, so you may recall okay. when... Uh, when our mother got her MBA and she took her computer classes, yep. she would type out on punch cards instructions for what the computer was supposed to do, and you'd run the program, and then if there were any problems, you'd you know get your your punch card back, and you'd have to like re-edit your program. And yep, it's not how software works for us today, right? I mean, you could make software crash and do weird stuff. Yeah, but. It's hard to make software go, I don't understand what you're trying to do. I'm confused and not going to operate correctly. You know, you could ask uh, Microsoft Word to make you a sandwich, and it just doesn't make you a sandwich. It doesn't stammer and, like, open up random documents and, (laughs) you know, suddenly start, you know, switching its language capacity to French. Are you looking for a Wikipedia document on the Earl of Sandwich? (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't do this kind of weird stuff. It just... Does nothing, yeah. And you know you could do the same thing with, with Alexa or Siri. You know you could try to ask it nonsensical questions, but what you end up getting back are humorous replies. Yeah. Right. It you know you you can't you can't logic bomb Siri or Alexa or Cortana. Yes. What you do is you basically get the weather or something, right? <laughs> uh huh. You don't get you don't get confusion and explosions and this kind of Now, on the other hand, you know, you could do that with people. You could do that really easily. You know, you walk into a hotel or a restaurant, business is worth familiar with, and you ask for something that they don't provide. Right? Like you go into a restaurant mm-hmm. and ask, you know, can you call me a cab? And they're like, "Ah, I, I don't have a phone." Maybe if you go over there, someone can help you. I, yeah, I, I can't call you a cab. Uh, but I want you to call me a cab because I have to go somewhere. It's important. Yeah, I don't have a phone. <laughs> you know, go over yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's where you will get this. I can't help you. I don't know what to do now. You know, these aren't... I, I, I take orders and I bring food back to your table. I don't call you a cab or arrange for, you know, yeah. weird stuff that isn't food. And uh, But they don't do that. They don't have this idea that, well, maybe the people have instructions and the people don't know how to operate outside their instructions. they got to go back to the computer and go, oh, why? Because we do find out later, only the computer is has creativity. 
Only right. the computer has you know pro- innovative problem solving, and the people don't. So it's kind of like a bunch of new, you know, service employees who are like, a guest is asking me for something weird. I have to go talk to my manager. Mr. Manager, uh, they're asking me to call a cab. Yeah, we don't do that. Yeah, but what do I do? You tell them we don't call a cab. You know, <laughs> whatever response you get, you'd be like, okay, that's what I'm going to go do now. Yep. But when you're talking to the guy, he's like, ah, you know, <laughs> I can bring you appetizers. <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing to do with cabs. <laughs> Download the Uber app? Uh, the door opens. Bones and O'Neill return, but they have been absorbed. The lawgivers tell Kirk, it's your turn to go. And again, he says no. But this time, the lawgivers say, it's come with us or die. Spock's like, well, you better go. So he goes. Kirk is then uh, locked into the device. Will he make his willpower roll? We don't know. So now comes my Sulu question, which is, if these guys got to be locked into this device to have to right. be you know, absorbed, how is he absorbed by the puff of smoke? That's the question. Yeah, so if the sticks do nothing, there are no switches, there is no gas emission, there's no powder. It's not a magician's trick. It's right. nothing. And yet, Sulu gets converted successfully by the puff of smoke. I mean, you know, it's not like, well, they're using a narcotic on him that makes him highly suggestible. That would have been an easy answer. Yes. Right? Yes, yes. And, but we get nothing out of there. And then we get this, that we have this deprogramming, you know, Manchurian candidate style. You know, we're going to take you to this thing and we're going to process you and... So I, I think this is a problem with the episode that probably could have been fixed with, you know, a writer who just said, I got I to gotta solve these problems. Yep. Yep, yep. I mean, but you had, you know, both Gene Kuhn and Roddenberry do a pass on the story, and yet you're mm-hmm. like, uh, how did this get through? Well, I think, you know, part of it is we are sophisticated viewers of these kinds of stories. I guess right? that's true. And so we instantly come up with a bunch of questions that they're like, well, but, I, you know, it's, I don't even know how this works. And we're like, oh, what you're doing is you're employing science, you know, fiction trope 12B, you know, the uh, indoctrination into the thing or the heat ray or whatever it is. Right. Let me explain how this works in science fiction. <laughs> okay, fair. So uh, we cut back to the cell. We find Spock is like, it looks like he's trying to mind meld maybe with Bones to find out if he's like still in there, what's happening. But Bones is deep under control. Spock says, commanding powers beyond our comprehension. The lawgivers then come for Spock. They point their poles at him. But it seems now, uh, so they take him to the, uh, the big machine area. It looks like Kirk is now part of the body. It sure seems that way. No, we say, not our hero. Then now Spock is in the machine. We find out that this man, whose name I had no idea what it was, so I wrote Stangine, because <laughs> that's what it sounded like. Apparently it's like Marpole, which isn't even close, <laughs> but whatever. <coughs> Stangine it is. He's the third man in the underground. He has stayed Landrew's hand for both the captain and for Spock, we find out. Stangine then asks, 
uh, Spock to uh, take to take down Landru. It has been prophesied that he will do do so. Spock is then able to fake his way past the guards. He even puts a smile on his face as he does it. Back in the cell, they start to formulate a plan, but Bones is eavesdropping. Kirk fakes his way through a conversation with him and then pulls the other two aside. Spock now has formulated a theory, which is that Landru is a computer. It's like the bo- with the body, all parts working as one. Kirk says that they must pull the plug. But, says Spock, what about the Prime Directive? Kirk says, well, that only uh, refers to a living, growing culture. Do you think that's what this is? Puts a little loophole in there. Uh, that's actually one of the, it's something in the book where they talk about uh, that even though he's created the Prime Directive at this point, he then even adds himself a little loophole here where he's like, uh, this is not a fruitful, growing culture. That's what the... It's a bit of a problem. Because we get uh-huh. this prime directive, this most important rule, and you know it comes out of our experience. It's a you know our colonial experience, right? Right. So Captain Cook goes into the South Sea, encounters some some natives, and then you know basically plops down the flag and goes, "You're now part of the British Empire," and start wearing shirts, gentlemen. And by the way, here's some Bibles, and you know stop living in huts and. So we go around, you know, messing in cultures, and what we get aren't a bunch of Englishmen, right? You know, we get something else. Uh, you know, sometimes it works out okay, sometimes it doesn't. And, you know, so we get this kind of idea of well, we shouldn't go around messing about in primitive cultures because we are a warp-capable society of tremendous science, and they're not, and there's, you know, this big gap. What we're going to create is a cargo cult, where they don't even know, they're just like, ooh, giant birds bring you all kinds of cargo. Quick, let's you know build airports out of bamboo, and and then we'll just like wait for the cargo to come. Yeah, you guys don't understand how this works at all. And so we get this good rule, and then we get this super easy flip, get out of jail free card, in which the captain just goes, up, oh, doesn't apply. Why? Reasons. I gotta have a dramatic show, and this is the kind of thing that, because of other values in the show, our humanism, our commitment to flourishing individuals, we gotta shut this thing down. You know, so there's there's no now. What happens is after let's you know after we have the run of Star Trek three seasons, and we do this several times you can begin to discern certain kinds of justifications for shutting down the AI that runs some kind of goofball society in which you're like, yeah, this is this is not a happy place. But again, like with the heat ray and everything else, they haven't worked those ideas out yet. They, they know instinctively that the humanists that are the Federation wouldn't tolerate this kind of sad, sad, repressive society being run by a computer. They'd turn the computer off and let people flourish. But we got the prime directive. How do we reconcile that? Problem for another day, gentlemen. Problem for another day. Stan Jean, uh, Stan Jean, Marpole, or whatever his name is, and uh, Rager return. Kirk demands their help. 
But then Bones, that little sneaker, calls them out. And he goes to choke Kirk, who eventually uh, puts him in a headlock and uh, knocks him out. Then the lawgivers arrive. Spock and, uh, and Kirk take up the two sides of the door. And as the uh, lawgivers arrive, they knock them both out with a punch. Spock, too. Kirk responds with, well, isn't that a little old-fashioned? So this came because uh, in the script, he, uh, Spock was supposed to do the Vulcan nerve pitch, right? But because of the way that the director had staged it to happen, where they were like hiding behind the doorway, uh, they just had Spock throw a punch, and then uh, Shatner ad-libbed that line of a little old-fashioned, isn't it? So uh, they pull off the robes off of the lawgivers and start putting them on themselves. Uh, they are looking for Landru, but suddenly the uh, underground... And yet we find out that there's this, like, super cool Vulcan martial yeah, arts. right, exactly. They are looking for Landru, uh, but the underground is reluctant suddenly. Uh, well, I think what happens is they get scared. I felt this was a, a really good part of the story. Okay. Is you have these guys, they've got a resistance... They're waiting for the, you know, the Archons to come and save them. But then when it's like, oh, we need you to do your part. Like, oh, we're scared. We can't help. Yep, sorry. We're going to go hide now. And you see them. They cower. Yep. You know, they... The one guy was almost they crying. They look scared. Yeah. Yeah. They look scared. And so, you, know, you kind of imagine coming down into one of these well-managed societies. Or just like showing up in Czechoslovakia, you know. Yeah. A 1969 or 71 or something going, hey, we're going to bring some in a rebellion to the streets. Like, no, 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 no. Hey, but don't you want democracy and freedom? Oh, we do. We want you to bring it. <laughs> and there were tanks in the streets a couple years ago. It didn't, didn't work out well. So as the men are cowering in the corner, Kirk yells at them and says, pull yourselves together and start acting like men. Back on the ship, the orbit is still decaying. And Kirk, because of, of the heat ray, because the heat ray, right? And they're being pulled. Uh, he orders Scott to put a guard on Sulu to keep close watch. I wrote, "Hmm, is this going to become something?" The answer is no. No, it does not. But it was originally going to become something. Originally, by uh, in draft three of this uh, of this episode, Sulu had a much bigger part. After being absorbed by the lawgivers, we see him under observation in the sick bay. And then, with a phaser in his hand, he starts taking over the ship, attempting to carry out the will of Landru by forcing the ship to enter the planet's atmosphere. Uh, but Robert Justman wrote to Kuhn saying, um, we're doing this already. We're already doing this. And in fact, we're doing it with Sulu in another, show, in another episode called This Side of Paradise. And uh, in that one, he's got a great deal more justification for it. So... And we kind of already saw it in the naked time. We don't want to have Sulu trying to take over this ship too many times, even if he is under the power of Landru. So why don't we cut out that subplot? Which they did. So, But it was definitely there to lay the foundation for it. Yeah, it, it certainly you know makes sense that they'd worry about it. So then Kirk, still yelling at Rager, tells him to spit out the story. What happened? Why did Landru become their leader? He says the world was chaos, and Landru was their, uh, was their human leader. He saw how to make the world a simpler and a better place, and he took them back in time to a simpler setting. Hence the, you know, the, uh, the, the, the Western yeah. outlook that it has. Uh, We're going to become right. Amish. But Stangine says that uh, Landru still lives. Kirk tells them that they have to help out. Freedom is a gift, 
and it has to be uh, isn't a gift; it has to be earned. That's what Kirk says. So uh, we can we can imagine this is also probably a, uh, a metaphor for Russia. You know, uh, you know, uh, the regime of, of of Landru looking very you know like the the politics of Russia in the you know in the fifties and the sixties. Everyone working toward not the body, but you know, for the greater for the greater good of the country and the party. Uh, yep. So uh, definitely uh, has a lot of Cold War stuff beating in this episode. So uh, Rager falls apart here and uh, has to be subdued, but Stangine says he will take them to the Hall of Audiences. They get there, standing before the doors. Stangine says, uh, "This is Landru." All right, open it. No, no, but this is Landru. Yeah, open it. <laughs> so Kirk and Spock enter, followed by Stanging. They remove their robes. Kirk starts calling for Landru. And he arrives in the same hologram. He again, not really answering their questions or talking to them, but says, for the good of the body, you must die. So they shoot at Landru, but they burn a hole in the wall. And a computer is revealed. A giant mainframe. As we, they have a mainframe. Exactly. <laughs> also, by the way, the shape of this wall is also the same shape of the gateway in the city on the edge of forever. So I was wondering if, like, they took this piece, they cut out the big thing they were going to, and now we'll just use it for the hole in the wall in this episode. Again, I could be crazy, but it is similar in shape for sure. Here, Landrew speaks again, but now we know it is just the computer. Kirk tries to shoot it, but Landrew inhibits their devices. Kirk then goes toe-to-toe logically with Landrew. Landrew dies. He could have given you his thoughts, his ideas, but he could not. Apparently Landrew just turns off his, his fan, right? And then with the fan removed, the computer instantly overheats and there's circuits frying yeah, exactly, and smoke. Yeah, yeah. And you got to keep that computer fan going. Because that thing was probably really overclocked. That's true. That's true. Yeah. It had been 6,000 years, apparently, with no maintenance. <laughs> he says he could give you your thoughts, his ideas, but he couldn't have given you a soul. The computer replies, your statement is irrelevant. The body, Captain, says Spock. That is the key. Ah, then what is the good you are doing? I am keeping the body alive. No, you have been harmful to the body. The body is dying. Without freedom of choice, there is no creativity. And without creativity, the body dies. No, wait, there is no life. And without life, the body dies. The fault is yours. Creativity, says Spock, is necessary to keep the body alive. I thought that that was an interesting statement coming from the Vulcan. That's right. Creativity is necessary to keep the body alive. So he gets, you know, a lot of stuff which is very consistent with Federation doctrine, right? right? So one of my responses was, you know, perhaps Spock's down on the planet surrounded by his Federation crewmen, and he's mouthing the ideology of the Federation. And then some time passes, we don't know how much, but we see them on the bridge as, you know, they're wrapping this thing up, and he's had time to meditate and think about this, and... You know, this may be Federation ideology, but it's not Vulcan ideology. And now I feel like I've got some distance to it, and I want to criticize it from a Vulcan perspective. 
And I'm wondering, is that what's going on here? He's he's going, you know what? You humans and your creativity and your flourishing, your Aristotle, you know, that's all well and good, but that's not the only way, you know, to build a happy, thriving society. And I think Landry was onto something. And <laughs> right. So we get that little thing at the end, but it's not explained. No, it's weird. And because we have... Spock being the one who says some of this stuff about creativity is necessary for life. You're like, whoa, Spock. You know, what's with the 180? Yeah, exactly. Kirk says the evil must be destroyed, and you are evil. Fulfill your prime directive. Keep the body safe. Shut down the fan. And that's it. That's it. Landrew blows up. Well, he turns his fan off, right? And he just uh, instantly overheats. Uh, He calls back up to... He calls a second later and calls up and says, uh, Mr. Scott, how are things going up there? And he's like, the heat... The heat rays have stopped. And Mr. Sulu is back to normal again. And he shrugs and smiles. And then taps the guy on the shoulder. like, oh, yeah. (laughs) Looks... Oh, shucks. Sorry, guys. Yeah. I know. Oops. (laughs) I was taken over by Landrew. That's do. weird, and and it's also weird that he's like, it was thirty seconds ago that the computer blew up, and all of a sudden he's back in uniform, ready to like sit at the con. Yeah, and, and okay, nobody's nobody's me. asking for a little observation. No, no. Yeah, but the guy who is you know thirty seconds ago, spouting off about the body and yeah, exactly in paradise. Give him the helm. So, oh, we can uh, see how much time has actually passed here because now it's three one five eight point seven. And it was 3157.4. So basically, it's a day and a half later that this little ending scene happens. So perhaps you were right. Perhaps you were right. Well, I think, you know, part of it is not good thinking through who gets what lines. Yeah. You know, some of the stuff Spock was saying is the kind of stuff that if Kirk or McCoy said it, you'd be like, totally unobjectionable, right? Yep. Now, McCoy's taken out because he's Will of Landrew, and Kirk's already doing a lot of talking. Mm-hmm. And you do have Spock helping him out by, you know, giving him some analysis and so forth. And all you really needed at the beginning of that bridge scene was for him to express doubts and then for Kirk to say, hey, you were the one who suggested, you know, creativity is like, you know, that is the Federation, you know, dogma and so forth, but I think it's really much more applicable to humans. There, you know, Vulcans have, you know, done this other thing and it's been really successful. And I think that Landrew really had some. And then he could make his case. And it, mm-hmm. we added two or three sentences of speech, not, you know, a whole other, you know, 15 minute monologue or whatever. And you'd be like, oh, yeah, Vulcan, Federation, not necessarily 100% consistent in terms of you know their ideology infinite diversity and infinite combinations so kirk tells us that a sociologist has stayed behind to help the planet survive everyone has been left on the planet as you said we've had fistfights and a couple of other things uh, domestic disputes but other than that everything is good uh kirk tells spock that you would make a splendid computer to which Spock replies, thank you, sir. So we, we get, get the... this little conversation at the end, right? Right. And Spock 
and Kirker are talking. Kirk makes what Spock describes as kind of metaphysical explanations, mm -hmm. right? I want the concrete, the, you know, the tangible. And, of course, it's at this point that you're like, Spock is totally an S, right? These are the arguments of a sensor rather than an intuitive. And, of course, Kirk, assuming that he is an ESTJ, would have that third function, NE, extroverted intuition. He'd have some, yeah, I can, I can roll with some philosophy here. I could do that. I'm okay with a little uh, philosophy every now and then. And then Spock would be like, nope. I'm a, you know, dominant uh, introverted sensor. Yep. Not going to have any of it. Give me concrete facts. Give me, you know, tangible things that I can examine and measure and run through an analysis. And that's what I would like. Sometimes Spock gets typed as an INTJ because he's a smart guy. But, of course, uh, intelligence is not a function of the INTJ. It's the, it's the big picture outlook which Spock is specifically yes. rejecting in this speech in favor of things that are tangible and concrete. Uh, and that's it. That's it. That's the end of the episode. As we said, we had those crazy last lines at the end, and then Kirk smiles, and sure enough, that's the end of the episode. Bum, bum. So uh, this was interesting. This was in the book that says, uh, the theme deals with Gene Roddenberry's belief that all men are driven by their egos slash or fears and or fears, and no one possesses the wisdom, be it the name of religion or government, to rightly control the will of others. So there we go. So more Roddenberry dogma going on there. Yeah, absolutely. Some, you know, this is, uh, you get some tension within the Enlightenment. On the one hand, it's the Enlightenment in which you get liberalism, right? So if we specifically identify the Scottish Enlightenment, you get Hume, you get Smith, you get this uh, stuff that really is, you get, well, you get Locke too, right? You get this individualism, mm -hmm. very powerful. But you also have a kind of more Rousseauian, French um, strand of the Enlightenment, which is more, no, we should, like Spock, govern with reason, and if maybe a computer would be more rational... After all, you know, humans are still emotional. And so, you know, there's a little bit of tension there. But fundamentally, I think, you know, the Enlightenment is, is especially as we experience this as Americans, because we're much more Scottish Enlightenment than we are French Enlightenment. We're going to experience it as this flourishing of individualism and a free society and benign neglect. And that's what we got out of Roddenberry. That's the Federation's right. values. Uh, this was also in the book. Uh, that uh, much of what happens in this show would uh, soon become known as a Star Trek formula show. The landing party is captured yep. while the Enterprise is attacked, forcing Kirk and the away team to gain their freedom as well as saving the ship. This is also the first time we see Kirk outthink a machine by using logic or illogic, driving his opponent out of its mechanical mind. What would soon become tr Star Trek tr cliches, he says, were in this instance unique and effective couple of final costs here for you the cost for in instance for the animated phasers was eight thousand dollars <laughs> seems crazy uh archons uh becomes one of the most expensive uh, star trek episodes the big supporting cat 
The big supporting cast that worried both Justman and Kuhn cost the series $28,395 for just the supporting cast in their costumes. The set's dressing wardrobe and props ran more than $32,000 alone. And the total cost for the episode, 210793 If we remember from previous episodes, the, uh, the, the budget is basically one hundred and ninety-two. Uh, that would also be in 2013 money, about uh, $1.5 million <laughs> for that episode, so... You know, you'd think that, you know, putting them all in Western clothing like they did would have meant, you know, you'd basically go to some big warehouse of central casting yeah, yeah. and go, yeah, we need 28, you know, cowboys or, you know, old Western yep. town suits. All right, here you go. Yep. You got you got a list of sizes? Yeah, here you go. All right, here you go. It'll be $12, please. Because right. <laughs> these aren't being used right now. So uh, this week, they came in third place this week uh, against uh, Bewitched and uh, All My Sons. No, wait. All My Sons was their lead-in. Uh, yeah, My sons? Three Sons. Sorry. But my no, that sons. was their lead-in. But it was Bewitched and one other show. They were in third place. But they were all literally within like percentage points of each other you know a couple percentage points so right, yeah. pretty much everybody won saturday night you know but then going into the nine o'clock hour uh there was a new show premiering on abc so uh star trek was in second place at the nine o'clock hour so always fun to see everyone always complains about those ratings but uh so far so good on the ratings well that's it for this episode i got nothing else anything you need to uh get off your chest no, I think we talked about it all. I think we did, too. Next week, oh boy, boys and girls, one of my favorite episodes, Space Seed. Ah, <laughs> yeah. For a guy who loves Wrath of Khan, there's nothing better than seeing the original Khan on the show. All right. It's going to be exciting. Cannot wait. Also, next week begins the grand experiment of uh, going onto YouTube. So you can watch us recording each episode on YouTube as well. So come check that out next week. Well, that does it. Thanks, folks, for tuning in. As always, you can find us on the website, thebrotherstrekabout.com. We are also on iTunes and SoundCloud. Please feel free to find us on there. Leave us comments. We always enjoy reading what people think. As for me, my name's Matt. I'm saying goodbye. And my brother Ken saying goodbye as well. Live long and prosper. That's right, and we'll see you all next week. <laughs> <laughs>